0: Hello and welcome along to Wired Foresight. I'm Greg Williams, Editor-in-Chief of Wired. Uh, Today's session is part of an ongoing series of conversations with leading figures and innovative thinkers in business, science, technology, academia, and policy to really investigate the fast-paced changes the world is currently undergoing, to explore how the world will be shaped in the coming months and years, and most importantly, to try and understand how we can prepare for these changes. Today, we explore the rise of fake news and the disturbing impact this has on how we think, how we behave, and on what we believe. Advances in artificial intelligence and digital alteration platforms have led to a rise in the volume of so-called deepfakes, synthetic media created using images and machine learning. Recent examples include the first COVID-19-related deepfake, manipulated media designed to influence elections, and fake pornography, which is designed to harass, And humiliate its victims, most of which are women. Today we'll investigate this wave of disinformation and how we can mitigate the effects that it's having. With that I'm excited to welcome our guest speaker today Nina Schick. Nina's a political commentator, advisor and public speaker and specializes in how technology is reshaping politics in the 21st century. She's advised governments on Russian election interference in the US and elsewhere around the world since 2016 She's worked with global leaders, including Emmanuel Macron, Joe Biden, and Anders Fogh Rasmussen, the former Secretary General of NATO. Her first book, Deep Fakes and the Infocalypse, What You Urgently Need to Know, has recently been published. Nina, welcome. Thanks so much for joining us today.
1: Hi. Thank you, Greg. Thank you for having
0: me. So I've been fortunate enough to uh, spend some time with your book, um, and it's obviously an area that's it's still emerging. Uh, it's moving at a very fast pace. So, maybe we can start with a, a basic question. How do you define a, a deep fake?
1: Well, what a deep fake is a piece of synthetic media, and synthetic media is any form of media, whether that's a video or an image, that's either partially or wholly generated by AI. There's going to be many, many positive and commercial applications for synthetic media. So when it's used in a negative way as misinformation or disinformation, that's when I call it a deep fake. The taxonomy around this area still hasn't really been defined. So I think from the top, I want to make it very clear that we're only talking about the bad use cases of uh, synthetic media in the form of deep fakes.
0: Okay, that makes a lot of sense. So you used misinformation and disinformation there in your answer. So I'm interested if you could maybe just pass that uh, in terms of what are the differences from your perspective?
1: Well, disinformation is when a piece of information is deliberately made in order to deceive or manipulate and misinformation is a piece of incorrect or bad information that just goes viral naively without any intent. And that I think are the two kind of big challenges in our information ecosystem when it comes to bad information and damaging and dangerous information. There is the bad information that's disseminated with bad intent, and there's also the information that's disseminated without this bad intent, but which can be just
0: as harmful. Okay, so if we're thinking about bad intent, like who's generating this stuff, why are they doing it?
1: So when it comes to deep fakes in particular, um, the really interesting thing about it is that it was the first use case in in the case of deepfakes is non-consensual pornography. So a lot of this has been disseminated or generated by um, anonymous actors on the internet. Um, But when, of course, it comes to bad information, what we're talking about, because our information ecosystem has changed quite so dramatically in the past few decades, And this is really in the ambit of not only state actors, also domestic political agents, but really anybody, you know, it could be a teenager in the basement. It could be increasingly as this technology is democratized, it could even be a child. So disinformation and misinformation can be disseminated by anyone in the 21st century.
0: Okay, and, and, and clearly that with the, you, you, you mentioned in um, the book that you described the infopocalypse as the increasingly dangerous and untrustworthy information ecosystem within most humans now live. Can you just give us a sense uh, for, from everyone watching on, on how this is being played out through the ecosystem, just so we can get a sort of sense of the scale and the, and the impact that it's having?
1: So when I first came to deepfakes, I mean, I come at it, my, my background is in politics and I came at it from a kind of geopolitical information warfare kind of perspective. What are rogue and authoritarian states going to do to disrupt our elections? What are the tools that are going to develop in future that is going to make this more potent but what i quickly realized is for the past kind of 10 years if you look at how corrupt our information ecosystem has become deep fakes didn't emerge in a vacuum because what we're actually seeing is how the age of information and all the rapid kind of exponential technological advances attached to the age of information which have had you know many positive benefits Also have a darker underbelly. And what I contest is that the entire ecosystem, which in the age of information has become increasingly important and increasingly universal in the sense that almost everyone in the world is now connected into this information ecosystem. Half of the world, which still isn't, will be in the next decade. And that this ecosystem itself, because it is completely ungoverned, unregulated, and doesn't have any infrastructure in terms of Safety has become dangerous and untrustworthy and I call it the infocalypse as this thing that is developing and in my perspective growing increasingly more potent
0: So uh, It's becoming more potent Um, tech obviously Legislators are running behind technology quite often, um, you know large technology companies tend to sort of have that kind of move fast, break things, and you know we'll, we'll worry about the uh, the impact of what we've done later on uh, do you How do you think we can get a, a handle on this? Is it possible, or is the genie out of the bottle? It's very, very hard to regulate this very, very hard now, obviously many people are involved in this ecosystem of misinformation, disinformation, are state actors. Like, what kind of sense do you have of how we can try and, and I'm using this word advisedly, how we can kind of control or mediate this kind of information?
1: Well, I argue in the book that, um, so first of all, I will make a few comments on how quickly this is happening, because actually, I want to say that, misinformation and disinformation or bad information are as old as humanity itself. So this is at its heart, not a tech problem. You know, it's not the tech that is inherently bad, but it's an amplifier of human intention. And what I argue is that now, because the information ecosystem has changed so quickly, we are facing an unprecedented crisis of bad information. Because if you look traditionally at the kind of huge technological advances that have completely transformed the way in which we communicate and receive information, there's usually been a little more time for society to catch up. So if you look at the invention of the printing press, you know, arguably before the 20th century, the most important invention when it came to human communication, there were 400 years between the printing press and the invention of photography. But in the last 30 years, it's been internet, bam, smartphones, boom, and um, uh, social media. And coming into that now is this synthetic media, disrupting potentially the most important medium of human communication in this ecosystem, which is video. So when it comes to solutions, I would love to say, there is one silver bullet answer, but there really isn't. Um, the first step, and this is why I wrote the book, I think, is just understanding and putting a conceptual framework around what is going on. You know, How is Russian interference connected to um, Pizzagate, connected to Donald Trump, connected to pornography, which on the surface look like separate, disparate events that are happening, but actually if you conceive of them as all being interconnected in this new information ecosystem, it starts making more sense. Only once we have understood and put a conceptual framework around this challenge, which, by the way, I think is soon going to emerge as just an important challenge as climate change, then we can begin to defend from it. And I argue in the book that, There really is no one solution. It has to be a society wide effort where civil society works with government works with tech and it needs to be a networked approach. And unfortunately, when it comes to regulation and government, given my background in politics, what I would say is that too often policymakers are too far behind they lag too far behind and i would not advise that the way to deal with this because the genie is out of the bottle and there will be many positive applications would be to regulate it out of existence not only because i don't think that's possible but because i think that sets a very dangerous precedent if you look that's one country where they've already said well we outlawed the use of deepfakes so the government effectively given the power to say what's real and what's not real we don't want to go down that
0: Absolutely. I mean, I, I think that's crucial. We shouldn't be be censored because of this. But in, in the second section of the book, uh, which I thought was very powerful, you look at um, Russian disinformation. Now, there was a story only this week uh, that, uh, that the New York Times reported out uh, around Black Lives Matter supporters in Portland supposedly uh, burn, burning Bibles. This story was shared by all kinds of people, including uh, uh, the Donald Trump Jr. The only problem is it seems to be generated by by Russian bad actors. How do you see this, uh, you know, uh, in, uh, Russian interference playing out uh, over the coming uh, weeks and months as we go into the, the general election on November the 3rd?
1: So there is, without a doubt, um Russian influence operations already underway. I track some of them in my book and I also describe how this strategy by the Russians when it comes to information warfare is really an old strategy that goes all the way back to the Soviet Union. It's just that now with modern technology, their potency has increased by an unbelievable amount. It's really interesting that you mentioned Black Lives Matter because although the history of race relations is not you know you can't say this is something that was manufactured by the russians it absolutely wasn't this is something that is a real and very important issue in american society and politics nonetheless because it is such a divisive and um polarizing issue it is a thread which the russians have consistently picked on and tried to untangle They've tried to worsen race relations in America since the Soviet Union, so since the Cold War. In the 1980s, I described this in my book, one of the most outrageous disinformation operations that the Russians ran was an operation called Operation Infection, where they claimed that the HIV AIDS virus, which disproportionately affects African American communities, was invented by the CIA as a biological weapon to kill African Americans. In 2016, they ran similar influence operations to undermine the African American community. So they were saying things on these Facebook communities, which they had built up um, to uh, enforce kind of tribal identity across the political spectrum. They were trying to agitate between Black Lives Matter and Blue Lives Matter. And the same thing is happening in 2020. So what has happened in the wake of the George Floyd protests? Of course, that was not caused by Russia. But given what a raw issue it is, it is an issue that the Russians are agitating on in this election. Uh, They have done in previous elections, and they even did it in the Cold War. So that's just a lesson to take from that. The kind of most raw issues in our democracies are being exploited by foreign agents like Russia and increasingly other Rogan authoritarian states as well.
0: Uh, and clearly, the coronavirus pandemic has, has been an opportunity for, for bad actors of all kinds. What kind of trends have you seen uh, during the last few months? It's clearly, this is something that uh, bad actors can seize upon.
1: It was so interesting because when I was writing the book, I wrote it very quickly at the start of the year but the ideas behind it had been developing for a long time. So I kind of track all the kind of dangers of our information ecosystem and how they play out, not only in the realm of the political, so I look at geopolitical actors and how it actually is increasingly infiltrating Western domestic politics as well, but also how this is something, disinformation, how it affects you know, private citizens in their personal lives and all companies. So when COVID happened, it was, I mean, of course, unfortunate that it happened, but for me, it was the perfect case study of my argument because everything I was saying about our corrupt information ecosystem is displayed and manifested in the COVID um, information epidemic. So on the geopolitical level, you have seen countries like Russia and China spread disinformation around the origins of the virus, right? Russia, again, going back to its old trope from the Cold War, was saying this is um, a U.S.-made biological weapon. Um, And interestingly, that's what China started doing as well, because the geopolitical ramifications for China um, in the wake of COVID are so severe that China, a country which has traditionally mostly kept its information operations pointed at its own citizens, has been taking a much more Russian approach in terms of infiltrating Western social media platforms to push their false narratives. So you have the whole geopolitical thing going on. Then you have domestic disinformation campaigns by leaders of, you know, our own Western democracies. And one of the case studies that I include is Donald Trump, who um, was saying you know, for months and months, it, seven weeks in the run up uh, to what has become this awful pandemic. He was saying he wasn't worried. It's going to go away actively spreading disinformation. And we know bad information is dangerous, but in the case of COVID, it's literally been claiming lives. Um, so you have these politicized information operations around COVID within Western democratic societies as well. And then you have the full gamut of bad actors who are not state or um, national politicians. So these are kind of the the scammers, you know, who are trying to sell uh, fake cures, who are trying to send emails around, posing as a World Health Organization so that they can fish for your details. So you've really seen it play out in all its dimensions um, with COVID, which is, I think, the first kind of global event, which is the perfect manifestation of the infocalypse.
0: So we're getting plenty of um, questions coming in, uh, Nina, so I'd, I'd love to go over to that in a second. But just one more question uh, from for me for the time being. Um, do you think there's a critical threshold at, at a certain point? We are just, our information systems are going to become overwhelmed. Like, how serious do you, do you think this, this challenge is?
1: I think it is fundamental. I mean, you could even make the argument that we've already hit that critical threshold. Um, a good example for the Western world is that when it comes to the issue, for example, of Russian interference—by the way, this is a fact; it has been proven by all West Western intelligence agencies. But if you look at the discourse around it in our society, you know, it's still treated as a partisan issue, and until. You, you know which which means that it cannot be treated as a national security threat that it is so you have you can make the argument that we've already hit that critical threshold in western democracies but actually i'm more worried about other parts of the world where they don't have the kind of safeguards and institutions that we still have to protect us from this onslaught sort of bad information um, where the potential consequences of disinformation and information operations are far more devastating. And one of the harbingers of that, it's a case study that I illustrated in my book, is talking about how um, this kind of information ecosystem actually led to uh, the genocide of the Rohingya in Burma um, in starting in 2017.
0: Right. Okay, great. So uh, Nina, if you don't mind uh, taking a look at some of the, the, the Q&As that we've got coming in, the questions we've got coming in. Um, I think there's maybe one that we can conflate. Uh, we've got uh, Misha uh, Glennie and Miko Hippenham both both asking sort of like a question around, Misha's asking around what stage are we at in creating watermarks on videos that states could sign up to as mandatory. Um, and and Miko's a sort of similar-ish question. In, in your opinion, is there an organization currently that has, you know, technology that, that, that's, that's, that's uh, proficient in detecting deep fake videos?
1: when it comes to the solutions, um, so we kind of, I think the more important piece is societal and digital literacy, but the tech solutions are equally um, as relevant and important. So there's two ways to look at it. You have detection and you have provenance or authentication. Um, On the authentication side, Adobe has just released a, a white paper, which they have done with the New York Times and they're working with Twitter where they hope to set an industry standard that all media can be kind of authenticated from the point of capture. On the detection side, there are many uh, detection efforts already underway, but the difficulty with it and many various companies, um, different models. The difficulty is, okay, first of all, this is all still so nascent that the AI behind detection was lagging behind the generation side of things. I mean, mm-hmm. this has only really been... Um, around for about three years. Now, increasingly, people are putting resources into detection. But given the nature of the AI behind synthetic media, the problem is that every time the detection capability gets better, so too does the generation. And a hypothetical question, which hasn't been answered yet by the AI research community, which I suppose we'll see playing out in the next few years, is Is there a point at which the generator, so the AI gets so good that it's even able to fool any detector? And we don't know the answer to to that
0: yet. Okay, great. Thank you, Nina. Uh, We've got plenty more questions coming in. If there's anyone you'd you'd like to to pick, um, that would be terrific.
1: Yeah, no, I'd love to answer um, Jack Graham's questions because I think it's a really, really important question. So he says, out of all the immediate problems, how concerned are you about the liar's dividend? Um, and my answer to that is that I'm very, very concerned. So the liar's dividend is the concept that in a world where anything can be faked, including video, right, which until now we have deemed to be pretty incorruptible and authentic unless we see it in the movies so if anything can be faked then everything can be denied and everyone has plausible deniability so i actually write in my book that because the age of synthetic media and deep fakes becoming ubiquitous i think we're still a few years away from that you know in three to five years it'll be ubiquitous and we might be diff- looking at a different situation but until then Um, I'm far more concerned about the liar's dividend, and I'm far more concerned about the liar's dividend when it comes to the US election this year. We have already seen how, um, so in 2016, when Donald Trump hit the nadir of his election campaign, you know, when that leaked tape came out. When he bragged about grabbing women by, you know, uh, the, the I won't say the word. Um, he then, in 2016, he had to apologize. And Donald Trump never apologizes, never backs down. But in that instance, he did. If that came out today, he would not apologize. He would say it's a deep fake. And interestingly, he's already started calling that video a deep fake. Yeah. Another really interesting incident was around, I mean, the George Floyd video that video that was so powerful that it united, you know, the whole, not only the US, but the world in these protests against racism. Um, The authenticity of that video, if had it emerged in five or six years, could possibly be denied so that it becomes a polarizing issue. And we've already had one candidate who is a verified Republican candidate standing for Senate, who has an entire theory about how the George Floyd video is a deep fake. So, We'll start seeing a lot more of that um, Well, we're already seeing it, to be honest with you. So the largest dividend is real and it's very scary. Uh,
0: maybe I could uh, ask you to take a look at uh, Sigmund uh, halderson's question as well, Nina. Um, I, I think the, the, the kind of nugget of it is like, how do we avoid restricting freedom of expression while we also um, ensure that we get quality information? Um, can we bring people together in order to make this happen in some ways that we do have this verifiable, uh, in quotes, truth that we can all uh, hang on to?
1: So I think the the entire crisis of information that we see right now is because we, made the flawed assumption that you know the information age and all the associated technologies would just lead to a human utopia you know which was the optimism of many of the founders but actually again and this is why i say it's it's not the technology that's to blame here it is ultimately a story about humanity we're not we're not uh all good and we're not all bad and what we are seeing is the downside to the age of information which is manifesting in this crisis of bad information. So the only way I think we can tackle this and this is why I'm hesitant to say we should regulate it or that there should be blanket bans on anything like deepfakes because we want to maintain the values of our democratic society including our rights to free information our rights to free expression our rights to um uh, say what we think and the only way therefore i think to deal with this problem is to look at the actual ecosystem as something that we need to uh shore up in terms of the infrastructure around it so that it's a safe space just like we do the same in civil society right you can't walk out well you can you can walk out of your door and shoot someone in the head but there will be consequences to that whereas in this information ecosystem you know where it's increasingly becoming easy to create disinformation and then disseminate it not only within a small community, but literally to the whole world with immediacy, there are no consequences. You can behave with anonymity. So I think that we have to start looking at the type of solutions that actually you take this information ecosystem and treat it like um, civil society and then look at how you can make the entire infrastructure safer and a place where uh you can actually ensure that there's trust in digital media
0: okay so we're pretty much out of time nina thank you for taking those questions Uh, just one final question if you don't mind me asking um i'm really keen to get a sense of of where you think this is going next is there a kind of you know a best case scenario and a worst case scenario you can lay out for us as you see the uh, ecosystem at the moment
1: so I would say that things are gonna get worse before they get better in whichever scenario you look at it. Um, in the best case scenario, things will get worse, but this problem, which I've tried to conceptualize as the infocalypse and all the connecting all the dots um, people will start to realize that it is you know, one of the biggest challenges of our age, and you will gather not only the political will, but the cross-industry, cross-society kind of networked approach you need to tackle it. And the encouraging side of things is that that work is already underway. And in my book, I highlight some of the organizations and people that are doing pioneering work in this field. Um, on the potential worst-case scenario, things get worse. And they keep getting worse. And there is no kind of networked or joint effort to try and fix the actual ecosystem so that the future basically is a never ending kind of warfare around narratives in which nobody knows who and what to trust anymore. So you just trust what you want to trust rather than having any kind of objective reality or truth, which is pretty devastating to um, Western democracies.
0: A bold warning uh, that we need to address. Thank you again, Nina. Thank you to everyone joining us. Uh, Stay safe, uh, stay well, and we will see you soon. Thank you so much.